Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Wow, it's great to see all of you here today. And we want to invite you now to take out your Bibles and turn in them in the New Testament to the book of Romans and chapter number 12. Now, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you can turn in that Bible to page 126 in the back, and you will find yourselves right at Romans chapter 12. Now, this morning as we begin, I want to read from verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, and I believe these verses are highly pertinent to every generation of believers. So I want to read verse 1 and verse 2. Paul writes, he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I want your eyes to move to verse 2 and particularly to focus on that phrase, and do not be conformed to this world. You know, the word that is translated conform there is a word that was used of imitating a pose. When my children were younger, I remember a time in which I had my hands in my pockets and I was leaning against a wall and I had my ankles crossed and I looked over at my son and guess what he was doing? He had his hands in his pockets and he was leaning against the wall and he had his ankles crossed. That's the idea here, imitating a pose. We're not to imitate the pose of the world. We're not to be conformed to the world. The New Living Translation translates this part of verse 2 this way, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. And I, I really like the Phillips translation here. It's maybe the most colorful one I've ever read. It says this, don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold. And, and this principle, I believe, that we're not to be conformed to the world, that we're not to allow us to imitate their stance, is a principle that every generation has to battle, and every church has to battle, and every believer has to be alert to every single day. Now, we live in the midst of a context. We live in the midst of a culture, and that culture is a fast-moving current. And if we're not alert to the fact that we live in the midst of a fast-moving current, if we're not intentional, that current will carry us places that we shouldn't go. Now, this morning we're going to do something very different from our normal morning, and that is I want to take some time to look at a popular movement within the church. And it's called, I'm talking about the church at large here, it's called the Emerging Church Movement. Just by a show of hands, how many people have heard of the Emerging Church Movement? So let me see your hands up. 
So I'm guessing maybe 30, 40% put their hands up. And so it's important that I think we take a little bit of time, if we're going to examine this, to understand it a little bit. Now, during my spiritual era, there have been a lot of movements inside the church at large. There was the Jesus People movement back in the 60s and the 70s. There was the charismatic movement uh, back in the 70s and the 80s. There was the seeker church movement in the 80s and the 90s. And now we have the emerging church movement in the 2000s. And what I find interesting is that each of those movements inside of the church at large brought strengths with it. For example, the Jesus people put a priority on loving and caring for others, and they were utterly committed to reaching the youth of their generation. The charismatic movement brought strengths with it. It brought us the strength of remembering the important role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church and the life of a believer. Another thing that the charismatic movement brought to us is in our worship, particularly the emphasis of singing to the Lord and not just singing about the Lord. And then you had the secret church movement inside the church at large, and it had strengths that it brought. Uh, it believed that the church is to be more than a spiritual huddle, and they had a clear strategy desiring. They thought it was important to have a clear strategy to engage and reach the lost with the gospel. And now we have the emerging church movement, and it brings with it strengths. A part of the major emphasis of the emerging church is that we, as followers of Jesus, need to live the heart of Jesus. We need to be the church and not just go to church. And they have the strength of concern about the poor and those who are in poverty, and they would fight against things in our day like human trafficking. The emerging church has the strength of saying that unchecked consumerism is just not a spiritual thing to do. We're just out of control living in this world where we don't care about anybody else. And they have the strength of desiring to serve other people generously. And you look at those things, and who would ever be against those things? I mean, wanting to live the heart of Jesus and to be the church and not just go to church and have concern for the poor and those in poverty and to serve other people generously, those are all wonderful strengths, wonderful strengths. Now, it's very important that we understand as we begin to talk a little bit about this emerging church movement. I want to say, by the way, many of them don't like to be recognized as a movement. They would say, well, we're not a movement. We are a conversation inside the church. But the point of it is when you have conventions and you have articles and you have journal things that are written about you, you, you really are a movement. And it's very important for me to underscore this as we talk about this today, and that is this, that there is incredible diversity inside of the emerging church movement. There is a spectrum of people there. They are an informal association of Christian communities, but they're not all identically alike. There are some in the emerging church movement who relish liturgy and the mystical, and they would be very into silence as part of worship and things like candles. 
There are some inside of the emerging church movement who think we need new vocabulary today. Rather than calling someone a pastor, we could call them an experienced designer. Rather than calling it the church, it could be an incubator of kingdom building. Rather than Sunday school rooms, we could call them life development studios. Some people inside the emerging church movement are into those things, and others, not so much. So it's just very important that we understand there's a spectrum of people who would identify themselves with the emerging church movement. You really can find no official spokesman. You really cannot identify one single authoritative theologian who would say, I'm the one who represents this movement. Many of those who do lead the movement would see themselves as a talker or a converser rather than an official spokesman. But as I said, there are conferences out there. There's an emerging church conference every year. There are books that have been written. There are journals and articles. There are blogs. And so there are functional faces that do connect to the emerging church movement. And I'll just share a couple of, uh, of names. Uh, you have Brian McLaren, who's highly recognized. You have Doug Paget, who's highly recognized. You have Rob Bell. You have Steve Chalk, I believe that's how his last name is pronounced, and then you have Dave Tomlinson. Those are just some examples of some of the more prominent people within this wide spectrum called the emerging church movement. Now, one thing is true of all movements. It doesn't make any difference if it's the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s. All movements need to line up with Scripture. And we need to be Bereans, as it says in Acts 17, 11, where we search the Scriptures and we examine not only other things that are going on in the church, but even our own church. Now, I am going to be doing a two-part series that I am entitling Emerging Error. Now, I want to be very, very clear, and I'm going to keep saying this. Not everything in the emerging church movement is erroneous. Please understand that. There are a lot of strengths that are there. But I do have some concerns. I have some concerns about common themes. I have some concerns about values. I have some concerns about some viewpoints inside of the larger emerging church movement things that come out of portions of the emerging church movement. So one of the things we need to do, this is a little different than we normally do, is you just need to make sure you have your thinking cap on today because we need to work through some things. We need to set a little bit of context. Here is our plan. Basically, we're going to do two things. Number one, we're going to look at the cultural backdrop of this movement. Every movement has a cultural backdrop to it. And then I want to look at two core concerns that I have, and I'm just going to preview them so that you, it's not like you're wondering where I'm going. The two core concerns I have regard the dilution of divine truth and the distortion of the gospel. And we'll be looking at some of that this week and then some of that, Lord willing, next week. But we want to begin by setting a cultural backdrop to all of this. Do not be conformed 
to this world. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And men and women, where we sit right now today, we are in the midst of a major cultural shift. It is a cultural shift from what is called modernism to what's called postmodernism. And I want to talk about those terms. I don't want to assume everyone understands them. You may have heard those flying around some. And I'm just going to try to be as simple as I can be, as, as core as I can be. Here's what modernism held to. Modernism would say that truth can be known. Modernism said there is a true and there is a false. There is a right and there is a wrong. Modernism said that truth is grounded in the laws of nature. And modernism says that truth is discovered through logical investigation. That's modernism. Now, secular modernism discounted the supernatural. Secular modernism operated apart from divine revelation. But we're involved in a cultural shift from modernism to what is now called postmodernism. What do we mean by that? Well, here's what postmodernism holds to. Postmodernism says that truth cannot be known with certainty. And you underline the word cannot. Postmodernism holds to the fact that truth is based on perception. Postmodernism embraces the idea that truth is individually determined. And what postmodernism gives birth to is relativism and subjectivism, where truth and right and wrong is a matter of taste and a matter of preference. And someone who embraces postmodernism would believe that settled convictions on the part of a person would be signs of arrogance and elitism. So you have modernism, you have postmodernism, and we're right in the middle of a shift of thinking in our culture from one to the other. Now, the third thing I want to just briefly summarize is what I would call historic Christianity, and there are parallels in historic Christianity to modernism. Historic Christianity holds to the fact that truth can be known. We've always believed that truth can be known, and God's put some of the truth into, the, into, the, into, the, into nature. You have the laws of physics. Laws of physics can be discovered. God put them there. And historic Christianity would also say, though, that truth is defined by God. Historic Christianity embraces divine revelation. Historic Christianity believes in what's called absolute truth. That means that something is true for all people, in all places, in all times. So when you look at historic Christianity and you look at this shift from modernism to postmodernism, very quickly you realize that historic Christianity and postmodernism are on a collision course. And again, it says in Romans 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world. This is a current that is moving along. Don't copy the customs of the world. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. So that's the cultural backdrop to everything. It's important that we understand that. 
Now I want to move to the core concerns that I have. And core concern number one is the dilution of divine truth. Now, again, remember there's a spectrum. I'm not saying everyone inside the emerging church movement believes exactly these things, but there is a common theme that emerges from inside of the movement, and it's a theme I would call agnostic humility. And you say, what do you mean by that? Well, here's the way the thinking goes. Since God is transcendent, since He is so transcendent, since He is way up there, we really can't know anything for certain about God. And doubt, even in the Christian community, becomes an esteemed value. And mystery, things we can't figure out, becomes an esteemed value. And you will often hear these statements coming from some inside the emerging church movement. I have more questions than I have answers. Or you might hear this phrase, we could be wrong about everything. Divine truth, we could be wrong about everything. I want to read to you a quote from Dave Tomlinson. This is what he said. Now listen to these words. He says, to say Scripture is the Word of God is to employ a metaphor. God cannot be thought of as literally speaking words, since they, the words, are entirely a human phenomenon that could never prove adequate as a medium of speech for an infinite God. It's just a metaphor. It's not that God would use words to speak to us. Now, we want to be clear here. Listen, nobody in the right mind, I think, in the Christian community would claim that we know everything about God. We just don't know everything about God. And even Paul declared in Romans 11, verse 33, he said, oh, the depths of the riches of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, how unfathomable His ways. I don't understand everything about God. God is bigger than me. God is bigger than you. And I know things that the Bible teaches, for example, like divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And you ask me, how do those things perfectly mesh together? I don't understand that. We don't know everything about God. We're going to spend all of eternity learning more about Him. But this is so vitally critical. What God has revealed, we know. God has spoken to us clearly and intelligibly, and this is true in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. Keep your finger in the New Testament part and turn with me to the fifth book of the Old Testament, to the book of Deuteronomy. And I want you to see what it says at the very end of Deuteronomy chapter 29. So Deuteronomy 29. We're talking about the dilution of divine truth. And some would say, well, he's so big, we really can't know anything. We could be wrong about everything. He doesn't really use words to communicate. Well, what does it say in the Bible? Notice Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There's things about him 
We don't know. There's things that we cannot understand because He is so transcendent and above us. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the, notice the word here, words of this law. God has revealed some things. They are ours. They are certain. They are clear. They are intelligible. And they came to us in words. Very important to understand. Now, go with me back to the New Testament. This same thing is true in the New Testament. If you go to the right of Romans a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want you to notice what it has to say there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning with verse 12. Now, we have received, it says, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit who is from God. And then notice what he says here. So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. So that we can know them. Which things, verse 13, we also speak, and then notice this, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. There are things that He has revealed that we can know, and they come to us in words. If I were going to try to use an analogy, it might go something like this. Imagine that, that you were born blind. Imagine that you had never, ever touched or heard of an elephant. You knew nothing about an elephant. And one day, as a blind person, you're walking along and you bump into an elephant. And an elephant is very different from you. And so you're wondering, what is this thing? And you begin to feel it, and you notice on one end there is a very thick tail. And as you're feeling along, you also notice that on the other end there is another tail, but it's a very thin little tail. And then you feel along and you find these giant kind of floppy things, and maybe you knew about a bird because you'd felt one, and you think, oh, I don't know, are these wings? What are these things? And all that would be a mystery to us. You would have more questions than you would have answers, right? But what if the elephant spoke to you and revealed to you things about himself? What if he said this one thing that might feel like a tail that's rather thick on one end of me is a trunk, and it's actually part of my nose, and here's the things that I can do with it. And then on the other end of me, this thing that is a little skinny-like tail appendage is actually a tail, and there are other things that come out of that end of me that I won't want to talk about. And then there's this other part of me, these big floppy things that really aren't wings. You see, they are ears, and here's how they function. And we would know some sure things because the elephant revealed them to us and explained them to us. That's the thrust here of 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 13. We can know things because God has spoken to us in words 
And what is interesting is you can take the book of 1 Corinthians and over and over again you'll see this phrase being used by Paul to those believers. He would say, do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? And of course the obvious answer is they were supposed to know because God had revealed things to them. And he was really chastising them. And... um, You know, another thing that happens in the New Testament, it's fun to go through the New Testament. You can look this up in a concordance, and you see this phrase over and over again. We know, we know, we know, we know, we know. That doesn't mean that we know all things exhaustively, but what it means is we are able to know things sufficiently. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Go uh, back in your New Testament to a couple of pages just before the final book, the the book of the Revelation, to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. And I want to read verse 13. We're talking about the dilution of divine truth, which concerns me. Notice uh, verse 13 of chapter 5. He says there, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why has he written them? So that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know it. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, he said, I am writing that you would know the hope of his calling, that you would know the riches of his glory and inheritance that we have in the future, that you would know the surpassing greatness of his power. And to imply that we can't really know, that it's unclear, that it's uncertain. I think in our day could have a similar impact that came on the church in the dark ages. You see, in the dark ages, this is basically the the value that existed then. It went like this. You know, the Bible, it's just too deep. It's just too profound for lay people to grasp. So we don't want you to have a copy of it. In fact, there's only going to be a few spiritual leaders who can handle it because it's so deep and so profound, you could never really understand it. And that's why we had the dark ages. And I think when we begin to say today that it's just very uncertain, we can't really know, it's unclear, we really can't know what's true, God didn't really speak clearly, we could end up in a new dark age that would be quite tragic. The dilution of divine truth that comes from among some inside of the emerging church movement concerns me. And I want to talk about some fruit that comes from that dilution of divine truth. I want to talk about two aspects of fruit. The first one is the downplaying of doctrine. The downplaying of doctrine. You see a lot of this idea coming out of some inside the emerging church movement where doctrine has a very negative connotation on it. Do you know what doctrine is? You know what doctrine is? If you look it up in the dictionary, this is what doctrine is. What is taught? That's what doctrine is. What is taught? 
So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that is doctrine. Doctrine is what is taught. But what some inside the emerging church movement would say is that doctrine is sterile. Doctrine is very unhip. In fact, Brian McLaren had said this. He said, postmoderns find traditional doctrines and biblical propositions as interesting as grass clippings. Yes, I think that's probably a true statement. That's where the culture and the flow is. Is that where we need to be? And really what happens inside among some in the emerging church movement is they're very down on some classical biblical terms of historic Christianity, terms like infallibility, terms like inerrancy, and terms like absolute truth. In an interview with Christianity Today, I want to read you some thoughts that Rob Bell shared. He talks about in that interview how he began to question the assumptions of the Bible. And he talked about discovering the Bible as a human product rather than a product of divine decree. He talks about discovering that the Bible is a human product. And the idea among some is that taking the Bible literally is an antiquated notion. Now, I want you to look at a couple of passages about what the Bible has to say about this. Look at 2 Peter, a few pages to the left if you're in 1 John. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Verse 20 says, Know this first of all. This is top-level priority stuff. That no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now, it's talking about those who were the prophets who gave us Scripture here when it talks about their own interpretation. It wasn't their own interpretation when they wrote this down. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It wasn't their interpretation. We don't have their interpretation in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the rest of the New Testament. We have what the Holy Spirit bore them along to write with their own personality and their own style. It wasn't their interpretation. It was an act of the Spirit of God moving them as they recorded these things. Now, that's vitally critical that we understand that. Turn a few pages to the left. To, uh, you have to jump over the book of Hebrews to get to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Now, again, we're not saying everybody who would identify with the church, emerging church movement believes these things and adheres to these things, but it's a common theme that comes out of inside of the movement. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15. Paul says to Timothy, from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. It came right out of the mouth of God. Those words came right out of His mouth. 
It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God, the woman of God, can be adequate, equipped for every good work. One of the fruits that we see from the dilution of divine truth is the the downplaying of, of doctrine. Kristen Bell, who is Rob Bell's wife, said, I grew up thinking that we've figured out the Bible that we knew what it means. She says, now, I have no idea what most of it means. It's an amazing statement. Because the Bible is clear on so much. Do we know everything about God? No. But the Bible is clear about so much. It is clear that adultery and fornication is wrong. It's clear about that. The marriage bed should be undefiled before and after marriage. The Bible is clear about stealing and embezzling, that shoplifting is wrong, and appropriating supplies from your job for your personal use is wrong. The Bible is clear about refusing to work if you are able to work. It is clear about the wrongness of gossiping. It is clear about using foul language. It is clear that we are to do good deeds to meet pressing needs. It is clear that there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given among heaven whereby we much must be saved. I have no idea what most of it means Amazing, the dilution of divine truth. And one of the fruit that comes from that is the downplaying of doctrine. Now, I want to share another thought with you that I think is very, very important here. And this is a common thought that you often see coming out of some in the movement, and that is this, that right belief is less important than right behavior that right belief is less important than right behavior. And right behavior is a strength of the emerging church movement. It is a strong emphasis they have. We need to live the heart of Jesus. We need to be the church. We want to serve the poor. We want to connect with the culture. But here's part of what happens. What is often happening is they create what I would call a false dichotomy. What do I mean by that? And that would be this, that you, as a follower of Jesus, have to choose one of the other. You can choose right belief, or you can choose right behavior, but you must pick. And they would say that right behavior is more important than right belief. And that, men and women, is a false dichotomy. The historic church has not believed that. In other words, there's theological terms for these things, by the way. Uh, Right belief, you have the term orthodoxy. Right behavior, you have the term orthopraxy. They mean right belief and right behavior. And it's not that we have to choose one or the other. We are to have both in our life. Both of them are vital. Right belief is vital, right behavior is vital, and the church is always out of whack if it doesn't have both. But here's what is really interesting to me when you start saying that right behavior is more important than right belief. In the New Testament, right behavior springs from right belief. 
You can go to the book of Ephesians, and chapters 1 to 3 are about right belief. Then having that right belief, you come to chapters 4, 5, and 6, which is about right behavior. Right behavior springs out of right belief. You have the same thing in the book of Romans. You have chapters 1 through 11. It's about right belief. And then there's a gear shift beginning with chapter 12 on through chapter 16, and it's about right behavior. But right behavior springs out of right belief. It's very important that we understand that. And we've even included that as part of our mission statement. When we talk about shining as light, and the L stands for living out God's truth. You notice it's not just learning about God's truth, it's living it out. That was very strategically crafted because what we didn't want to do is just have all of our beliefs down straight and then we don't have our behavior what it ought to be. It's not one or the other. It's both. And it's very important to understand that right behavior grows out of right belief. If you don't have right belief, you're going to have behavior, but what's it based on? And so... Part of the fruit that comes from the dilution of divine truth is the downplaying of doctrine. I want to talk about one more thing here. We're going to be closing. Another fruit that comes out of the dilution of divine truth is what I would call overt tolerance. Overt tolerance. Do you know what the supreme value of postmodernism is? I'm talking about cultural postmodernism. What's the supreme value? Tolerance. Tolerance. Because we can't know anything with certainty, so we have to tolerate everything. And what I see coming out of part of the emerging church movement is a reluctance, yes, even a refusal, to label beliefs and practices as wrong. Brian McLaren was involved in a question and answer session at a workshop in the 2004 Emergent Convention. And he was asked what he thought about the issue of homosexuality, and here's what he said. He said, I'm not entirely clear that what the Bible means when it speaks of homosexuality is exactly what we mean today when we speak of homosexuality, and therefore I want to be very careful not to condemn what the Bible does not. Interesting. You know, the Bible says that the practice of homosexuality is not natural and is indecent. But because of the cultural flow seemingly influencing some inside of this movement, we're not really going to make any judgment because we really don't know what it, We don't know. We can't say for certain about any of this. Now, I want you to understand something, that Brian McLaren and Bruce Hess both believe that we are to relate to those with homosexual desires with grace. And if you'd like to know more of, of our perspective on this and more of a biblical analysis, I invite you to get a hold of the messages from the same-sex controversy series that we did, and it's available in our Light Source store today. It's available on our website. You can download it. But part of the fruit that comes from the dilution of divine truth is, is this idea of overt tolerance. And, and men and women, this, this is some amazing stuff. And we're going to talk a little bit more next week about many 
pieces of communication encouraging us to be very tolerant of all the world religions, which I believe ultimately will lead to a distortion of the gospel, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. So we invite you to come back. But for today, how are we supposed to respond to all of this? There's stuff going on in the culture. There's a movement going on of which some of it seems to be a little bit questionable. How are we to deal with all of this? Well, I want to suggest two ways that we should respond. Number one is we need to live out Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We need to live that out. This is not just a case of us pointing fingers at somebody, but we need to live it out out. We need to not be conformed to this world. We need to be not caught up in the flow of the current. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we need to be presenting our bodies to God as a living and holy sacrifice. It's acceptable to Him. It's our spiritual service of worship. When we think of all that He has done for us, It's the least that we could do for him to say on a daily basis, I'm presenting myself to you as a living sacrifice, and I don't want to be conformed by this world, but I want to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. That's that's one thing we can do. Secondly, I believe, is that we need to be Bereans. We need to be Bereans. You know, the Apostle Paul came and communicated truth to the Bereans. And in Acts 17, 11, it says this, they received his word with eagerness, and then they would examine and search the Scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. In other words, Paul brought revelation to them. They welcomed that revelation, but then they took the Scriptures that they had, and they said, even of the Apostle Paul, How does what he is saying, how does what he is teaching match up with the Scripture that we had? And men and women, that's what we need to be doing today. There's a lot of good in the emerging church movement, but we need to be Bereans, and we need to be examining what's being said. I want to close today by reading two verses from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. This is what Paul instructed those believers Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. What is the treasure? The sound words. Retain the standard of sound words and guard the treasure that has been entrusted to you to you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you just for this opportunity for us to think biblically in our day, for us to be alert to the current of our culture, and to even be aware of what's going on inside the church at large. And Father, it's not our desire to judge people except to say, how Does what they say and teach and believe match up with the Word of God? And Father, we would pray, we would be part 
part of the group of believers in our day who retain the standard of sound words and that we would guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us this treasure that you have entrusted to us. We would pray we'd be that kind of men and women. We pray we'd be that kind of a church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.